Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Okay, Alex, I want to start this episode by welcoming in not only just you, but the 17 people outside your window who are blasting music for Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> Can you blame them, is my question. I because mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in my room with no light coming in, uh, just sitting in front of a bright uh, computer screen talking about a sport that isn't even going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> Those people are just living their lives. This could yeah. all be irrelevant because I could have been able to just uh, edit it out, but we'll we'll see if the listener knows what we're talking about here. <laughs> that's I think that's applied to like eighty percent of the conversations we have here anyway. Maybe I'll just leave it all in. Just completely raw, unedited version of the pod. Fuck it, we'll I mean, do it live. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean it's like we're one of those podcasts that just kinda has like background music, like dipping in and out. Like in fact, cut this whole first part and maybe they'll think that like we just have music in our podcast now. That would be kind of cool if we did just have like a DJ play music in the background of our show. <laughs> That's all. I, you know, the dark secret of this podcast, we're already getting off track here. But the dark secret of this podcast is that I wish we were just doing a radio show and we just had a radio DJ just playing ridiculous music in the background the whole time. Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, like when one of us says something the other one doesn't agree with, it's like kind of a, a record scratch sort of thing. And then you're like, hold, wait, 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 hold up. You know? <laughs> Do you think we would work well with a third producer? I'd like to think of us both as co-producers of this show. So bringing in a third producer, do you think we would do well with that? Do you think that they would get tired of uh, hearing us pitch segments on yelling about baseball owners? <laughs> I think they'd be like, come up with something new, guys. It's not it's not rating well. Probably, but I think it'd be good to have someone in the background who's just sitting there like telling us to wrap it up on the segment, you know, because as our listeners know, we can pretty easily go for 45 minutes on just about anything. So it might be nice to have an outside party just like hit the stop button once in a while. I think that'd feel good. Yeah, we're open to the idea, you know, if like WBOK Oklahoma City wants to come bring on. WBOK. Completely made that up but wants to bring us on as part of their afternoon drive time run. It'd be a nice little change of pace for listeners. It certainly would get people mad. I, yeah, especially listeners in Oklahoma who don't even have a professional baseball team. So they'd be like, why the hell are these people on my morning drive? You know, I, I think it would make people angry enough that they would engage. That's all we want about baseball. We want people to engage with it. That is, whether you love it or hate it, we really just want you to watch it. That's our desperate plea to you. We're not de- we're not desperate at all. <laughs> we we like to joke about being able to do the show live, but there's absolutely no way we could ever do this as a radio show live. Uh no, you mean just like the 45 second pause that you just cut out that the <laughs> listener has no idea just happened there. <laughs> Don't pull back the curtain too much. Uh we're going to talk a little bit about the coming week of across uh, the table bargaining that is hopefully going to go on to bring baseball back this season. Uh, but before we do that, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Baisley. And you're listening to Tipping Pitches. Alex, this is, uh, this is episode 124 of Tipping Pitches. 124 episodes of us doing this. We're coming up on three years. This is big. Are we going to have like an anniversary party? Did we do an anniversary thing for the show last year? I think we like, I think we sat down and we're like, what has changed about the last two years of doing this show? What has changed in the baseball world? Yeah. Like how has our, has our view of it shifted? I remember the year before that we missed our anniversary and we said, oh, by the way, last week was our anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) That's on brand. Very on brand. That was Uh, even more on brand. Bobby, I'll only do an anniversary episode with you if you buy me a ring to commemorate the the, the time that we've spent here together. This actually actually forge this bond into something solid. <laughs> It'll have 
I I need it to have at least 124 individual diamonds to commemorate all 124 episodes that we've done together. With uh, an extra one for the Webby Award that we're going to win on our third anniversary and two extra ones after that for the duality of our friendship. I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 12 more for every time we've referenced Mike Francesa on this show. 12? <laughs> try like <laughs> Try like 100 <laughs> more. Uh, we're referring, of course, to the Washington Nationals World Series champions rings. Um, it was circulating on social media l- earlier this week, a picture of their World Series champion ring, which they will... Uh, likely not be able to hand out in a in a formal ring ceremony with the way that um, the season is going to have to be shortened and changed. So I, I don't think that Rob Manfred is going to fly on down to or take the take the Acela train down to Washington D.C. and hand them these rings face to face, given the nature of the global pandemic. Um, but we'll see. Uh, anyway, it was reported that the Washington Nationals will have 108 diamonds in their World Series ring. Which, nice flex. Anytime you can have over a hundred diamonds in a ring, you should do it. But their their <laughs> yeah, justification, <laughs> their justification was one hundred and five diamonds for the regular season and postseason wins. As you know, we always refer to the Nationals as a we always refer to a, a team single season wins as regular plus postseason. <laughs> <laughs> plus one for the World Series championship and plus two for a nod to the duality of franchise history. Dude. You, you know, you can't argue with that. There you, is a duality of franchise history. I don't history. understand it. <laughs> the, so, the duality of franchise history obviously referring to the fact that the Nationals were moved from Montreal to Washington. So, are they trying to are they trying to open their arms to the Montreal fans? Who none of whom are Nationals fans now? I have no idea. I mean, which they they probably aren't, right? Like, I mean, would you just maybe maybe they are? Maybe every Expos fan followed them to DC, but I wouldn't. Um, Craig Goldstein said, "This is absolutely backing into however many diamonds it took to do this, and I feel bad for whoever had to write the duality of franchise history." Yeah. So it was just 108 diamonds to make it look nice, and they just made up the math. <laughs> so there is literally there is a math element that goes into every single aspect of this ring. Uh, 32 custom cut genuine sapphires. Oh, that's for the seven walk-off wins plus the 13 shutout wins plus the longest winning streak plus four postseason rounds. One. That I take I take issue with the fact that you called that math. That's not they, you can't just make up numbers and call it math. Are they are you going to tell actually, me that that's entirely what math is? No, it's just it, not. <laughs> are you going to tell me that the ring weighs like, you know, 348 milligrams or something and and that's because it's that's Juan Soto's OBP minus Max Scherzer's pitcher wins plus Sean Doolittle's multiple inning saves? Like that doesn't that's not fair. You can't do that. You can't just make up a bunch of numbers. There's a, unlimited possibilities for all of the outcomes that you can get from baseball numbers. I feel so much shame for the intern that like they handed a ring and they were like, "Here's the numbers for it. Come up with some meaningful shit for us to tell people about." Oh yeah, the 30 custom cut rubies for the 30 runs scored in their World Series game victories is like the closest it comes to making any sort of sense. <laughs> I kind of like that just, one. You just mailed it in after that. 30 runs, everyone's important. They're all <laughs> rubies to me. This is what happens when you give baseball teams too much time. Like yeah. they pass this one down to the analytics department and they were like, make this one make sense, boys. <laughs> <laughs> they have the. Um, they have each series that they won along with the the resulting outcome of the series as well as the the logo of the team that they beat on the ring which i, I don't know bodied. how i feel about that i yeah I, I i guess bodied but like you're walking around just like wearing a piece of Houston Astros paraphernalia as well you know it's like it's showing respect to your opponent you know respect to our fallen <laughs> Her fallen enemies. <laughs> and of course, uh, of course, it included 
an engraving of the one and only baby shark on the inside of the ring as well. I See, mean, that, just there is so much crap packed onto here. It's sneaky. Insane. That is the most insane part. Yeah. It's like, it's just too much. The whole thing is too much, but the baby shark part, it's a kid's song. Okay. In a hundred years, this is this is legitimately an artifact of baseball history, and you carved baby shark onto the inside. Let's get serious, guys. Honestly, I'm auditioning for my Oklahoma radio show right now. Let's get I, serious. <laughs> I've, I've I've come back around on it. I actually fucking love it that on this in theory this thing that these players will cherish for the rest of their life. There's just a cartoon drawing of a shark on there that references a song that no one's gonna remember in like three years. I barely remember it now. That's that's amazing. Counterpoint. Everyone's going to remember it in three years. Please put some respect on Baby Shark's name. Counter, counterpoint. <laughs> the drawing looks bad. It's not even a good draw. Like, the shark is is wearing a very basic Washington Nationals shirt and holding up the World Series trophy. It's very strange. It's all very strange. Again, back to my point. In In 80 years, one of these World Series rings is going to be in Cooperstown. And someone is going to look on the inside of it and they're going to have to read a paragraph on a plaque that says, in honor of Gerardo Parra's walk-up song, Baby Shark, which the Washington Nationals, the 2019 Washington Nationals, rallied around for some reason. Which I think is, is actually cool, but is meant for Twitter and not the actual World Series ring. We carved Baby Shark into the inside of the ring. You know that this is going to be the central piece of Uncut Gems too, right? <laughs> it is sort of an interesting... I mean, now it's out in the public, but it would be an interesting way to verify which one's real and which one's fake. If you're trying to do like a knockoff and you get the baby shark wrong. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Your baby shark looks too real. The real <laughs> one looks fake. Or there's like 107 diamonds on there and you're like, fuck, I only did one diamond for a nod to the duality of franchise. <laughs> Damn it. I like how... Last point on this, and then we'll move on mercifully. The plus one for the World Series championship, one more diamond for the World Series championship. It's like the whole ring is for the World Series championship, Chief. <laughs> like it, the whole thing. You don't need to put one more diamond. It's not like the W, we put two W's, one for the Washington Nationals and one for the World Series. Like, no. <laughs> That's the whole point in doing this. I think yeah. World Series rings are dumb, by the way. Cool, but we've lost control of World Series rings. Like, let's just make a cool, flashy, ridiculous, blingy ring that sort of looks like a high school graduation ring or whatever. And let's let's move on. Yeah, I I respect the Nationals' commitment to like getting dunked on in the middle of a baseballless spring. Like, in theory, if this is the sort of thing that gets announced in the middle of May when there's, like, actual meaningful baseball going on, like, they probably drop this on a Tuesday afternoon and people mention Baby Shark and then move on. But this provides, like, 24 hours worth of fodder for Twitter to just talk about why the hell, what the hell the relevance is of 108 gems. I almost, I know I said that we were going to move on after this, but I almost <laughs> want to keep going just to see how much time we can get out of this. We're almost at like 15 minutes of talking about the World Series rings. I and you it's know it's kind of like a fun thought experiment. I mean, it it kind of is, and maybe maybe it works. We're now talking about the Washington Nationals 2019 World Series victory for much longer than I ever would have thought about it. Anytime you can make it onto WBOK Oklahoma City, <laughs> and you've designed the World Series, or you you've done a good job. Okay, we're we're really going to move on now. Are we gonna are we gonna take a fifteen second break to let our stations identify themselves? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is the worst audition for a live radio show of all time. I want to talk to you about uh, the coming week of labor negotiations that are gonna gonna happen between uh, MLB the owners and the MLBPA. I I don't think that I want to break it down with you. Like who's going to win? What's going to happen? What items are going to be on the table? Who's going to trade what for what? I think I, I want to talk to you more about this idea um, that there is inherent toxicity in the relationship between MLB and MLBPA because I feel like this is something that gets 
talked about a lot, mentioned in passing at the beginning of all the conversations about how this is going to be intense negotiations between the two sides. And at their core, they really hate each other. Um, I'm quoting directly from a Jeff Pass, the Jeff Passan article, the most recent one about uh, the coming negotiations. He says, at their nature, there is strife and discord. Those were the two words that he used between these two sides. And I more just want to ask you, I concede that there is strife and discord between these two sides, and there's a long history of that between them. But I more just want to ask you if we're being a little lazy about using that to acquit the owners ultimately, but to acquit any fight that goes on and to, to acquit either side of any fight that goes on that we think is actually unnecessary. I accept that there is this strife and discord between these two sides, but I don't think that I'm willing to concede that it should apply to every single circumstance. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, yes, I see what you're saying because I think that that places the, the onus on both sides to come to the table. Um, I, one thing that actually wasn't even on our show notes because I completely forgot about it until now was Alex Rodriguez coming out um, this past week and basically making making an appeal to both players and owners to just put aside your differences. It's millionaires versus billionaires. The public doesn't care about that. Just half the money goes to the players, half the money goes to the owners, and let's just come together and and play baseball because it's for the greater good. And it is just kind of this... It's this idea that, well, yes, there's conflict baked into their relationship, but if they can just put aside their differences, then they can come to an agreement. And both sides have to make sacrifices. And that completely whitewashes the the power imbalances in that relationship where one group of people is worth like 10, 100 times more than the other side of that group. And, and like that legitimately matters. That matters in this conversation, and it's not something you can just kind of hand wave away by seeing by saying, "Well, they both have their grievances. They both have their their things that they believe in." Yeah, that's what I mean. I have listened to a lot of people talk about the coming negotiations between MLB and MLBPA, and I've heard this sentiment that we're discussing, and I've heard I've also heard the sentiment that can you imagine if they don't figure this out? Can you imagine if baseball doesn't come back because they're fighting over money? Can you imagine the the PR hit that the sport as a whole is going to take. And I I generally agree with that. I think people are going to be mad if baseball doesn't come back because neither side could agree on money and people are going to just place that blame wherever their politics on this issue lie. But I don't think that I totally am willing to concede the idea that because that the PA and Marvin Miller took hard lines on things decades ago that we should shrug our shoulders and say it's okay that this relationship is this adversarial over every single thing that we talk about i think that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of who has the ability to give what in certain instances and we're not holding honestly we're not holding the ownership side as accountable as we should be in these conversations because we're like well neither side wants to give anything at all obviously but which side has has something to give. It's the owners. They're the ones holding all the revenue. They have to give some of it to the people who are actually performing the work, performing the task, allowing baseball to be as popular as it is, and that's the players. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, I get why the optics of all of this are like, I get why the optics of all of this are somewhat difficult for the for the public to grasp or like even care about. Like, I understand. Like, if I'm Joe Schmo, who just has my, you know, working class day job and I make 50K a year or whatever, I've just been furloughed by my job, you know, whatever the case is, like 50K yeah. a year, raking it in. <laughs> I don't know our WBOK uh, target demographic, clearly. Um, but like, I get why the optics of like millionaires versus billionaires God, if fighting I, over it, you if know, I could like, just like, if I could do in my real life, just the Twitter hide search term or whatever for millionaires versus billionaires. God, I would. And I'm not even blaming you for saying it because it is, it is the dynamic that you have to talk about when you talk about this issue, but just it sucks, man, because it's a, it's an unwinnable argument. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. 
And it rings completely hollow when players like Alex Rodriguez and Mark Teixeira come out and make it because I'm like, wait, but you're a part of that class. You can't, you say, let's put aside our differences when for years you negotiated to get that higher salary, right? Like the only Alex reason Rodriguez, that you they wanted are... to make hundreds of millions of dollars. Yes. The only reason that they are even comfortable saying that is because they were allowed to make X amount of money. Like, yeah. and, guess and what? Benefited the dudes that you're caping for, the dude that you're caping for, George Steinbrenner, whoever it is, didn't like volunteer to pay you yeah. you know as a matter of fact he tried to get out of paying you at the end yeah. and, and you had to have a, for you you had to have a public confrontation whether it actually happened in public or whether it was just leaked and reported publicly but it became pretty public in your last season about whether you were going to get all the money that you were owed and then you turned into like a weird half player half coach half front office advisor in your final season and you got all your money in the end but don't think that it was because george steinbrenner was like actually alex take a trip to hawaii and we'll just send you your 40 million dollar check for the rest of your contract that didn't happen by by chance yeah so i don't know how we weighed out of this and it's very clear that like owners are very okay just kind of resting on their laurels um the players union basically asked for documents about um, the owner's financial distress. You know, the league and the owners took like a week to respond and they didn't really, they weren't super upfront or clear about what documents they were giving. And there were agents basically saying, yeah, this is BS. This isn't, this isn't what we asked for. Right. So like, but I think that that's the, the teams basically relying on the public ultimately, like not really giving a shit. And at this point, like, or the story just being so hard to follow that even if the public does care, right. it's impossible it, it, to, to Yeah, follow. exactly. And agents and the union at large is kind of relying on the media to telegraph this sort of thing in like the clearest way possible. And like, this shit's not easy to grasp. Like, it's not easy for me to grasp either. And so I understand completely the impulse to just kind of be like, I, I don't care who ends up with what amount of money in the end. I kind of just want to see baseball. Like, I get that impulse from fans. And so ultimately the onus rests on like organizations, media organizations, um, on players, on agents, whoever it is to like come out and be like, no, here is why this matters. Here is what this power dynamic, this imbalance like actually looks like in practice and why it's so important. You know, like that difference between you the money that you're making and the money that your boss is making is the exact same, just blown up by multitudes. Yes, completely. And and when we did the state of labor in baseball with Michael Bauman this past January, kind of halfway through this offseason before we realized that <laughs> this was going to be the never-ending offseason, um, that's exactly what he said. I mean, the most effective argument is just, this is what your boss is doing to you times 100 or times 10 or times 1,000, just whatever it happens to be for the size of your industry. And I think that's an I think that's an easy to understand thing for people, but I also think that people I think a lot of people don't think about their lives in that way. I think they think do I have enough to live my life? And for a lot of people the answer is no. For enough people the answer is yes. And it just doesn't infiltrate its way into sports. I I want to say like the way that I simplify things in my head is given free reign which side would act worse? So if the MLBPA was able to get everything they want or everything that they've ever asked for in history, would the owners be broke? And if billionaire, if the billionaire owners were allowed to get everything they want, would there be players who are broke? I think the answer to the first there question is no. Are. There and the answer are, to the sex, right? second question is yes. Exactly. So there are hundreds of thousands of players who are already broke and MLB owners would be happy extending that to more players if it meant lining their pockets a little more. So baseball started the labor market for baseball started where it was 98% of the power was with the owners, the power and revenue is with the owners. These are, these are gross estimates, but let's just go with it. 98% of the power and the revenue is with the owners and maybe 2% went to the players. And then the union came in, and they were able to wrestle that away, and wrestle that away, and wrestle that away over decades and decades of legal battles, of proving that the owners were colluding and doing, and doing illegal activities. 
and continue to collude and do illegal activities. And they were able to wrestle that all the way to the point now where the players who are a much, 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 much larger pool of human beings than the owners finally get more than 50%. Not all the way back to the 98% that they used to get. Not all the way to 100%. Not even upwards of 70% of the revenue. The players now get over 50%. And if the union wasn't there to combat this behavior, it would just go back to where it started. Because that was, that was, we've seen how owners behave when they have no accountability. But people are assuming that players would behave the same way. People are assuming that that's what the PA is asking for, but it's not. It's not. No, the union has never taken the public stance that they should get all of the money and all of the own, owners should go broke owning the teams. That's not the stance they're taking. <laughs> and despite what anyone might tell you, they've never taken that stance because that's not what unions do in America. It's just not. And that's not what the MLBPA does. I think it's pretty safe to say that if you took away the MLBPA, this would just turn into Amazon and just like every owner would be Bezos rich or the owners collectively would be Bezos rich. If it's uh, if it's not clear from this conversation, we think the, uh, the players should just get paid. Owners should just kind of suck it up. Sorry, I don't cry my tears for the billionaires. We're going to open up the phone lines. Greater Oklahoma City. What do you think? <laughs> I don't know why Oklahoma was the first thing that I thought of. It's just like the dead center of the country geographically. It's nothing against Oklahoma. No, in fact, I think it's it's a real testament to the the market that we want to break into that Oklahoma is the first place that jumped into your mind. Burgeoning. (laughs) Burgeoning sports town. (laughs) Seriously, I think, I mean, the Thunder have done well there. I don't know. What do I know? (laughs) This is not an NBA podcast. Uh, I want to talk. So when baseball does eventually come back, if baseball comes back this season, if those millionaires and billionaires figure all this nonsense out, Alex, mm-hmm. um, Joe Buck, friend of the podcast, has uh, has said that live sports on TV in 2020 will have crowd noise piped into them, even if fans aren't there. I think he's since walked this statement back a little bit. I think he was. I think he said that he's not speaking for Fox and saying definitively that it's been decided that there will be crowd noise piped into the stadiums. Um, but that he just assumes that there will be just for the nature of the telecast to make it feel to fans at home as close to what it felt like watching live sports in 2019 and, and prior to that. I want to, what do you think of this? Just first thoughts. You're watching a baseball game, no fans in the stadium, and you're hearing crowd noise. Because we haven't talked about this yet, on or off pod. My first thought is I feel really bad for whoever is going to operate that soundboard and accidentally hits the the wrong crowd cheer button at the wrong time and like Max Muncy hits a home run and the crowd boos or something like that. Like that's going to be incredibly awkward and it's going to happen. Yes, it's definitely going to happen. My second thought is that it's pretty unnecessary. Um, having watched the KBO games that have been broadcast on ESPN, it doesn't sound weird. It's not eerie. It's not empty. You have commentators that are talking most of the time. For 90% of baseball broadcasts, the crowd is mostly like just kind of a buzz in the background. And if it's any louder, it sucks. It's awful when the crowd is too loud. And watching the KBO games without any stand, without any crowd. Alex doesn't want you to cheer. If you're listening to this podcast, next time you go to a baseball game, shut the fuck up. I mean, um, no, watching the the KBO games, it almost kind of sounds, I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of fun. It sounds more like a college baseball game because you can kind of like hear the players chattering in the dugout and you can hear the players like cheering the the crack of the bat sounds a little bit more crisp and it echoes a little bit more. There is kind of like a unique aspect to that type of like auditory sports experience. And I don't think that like piping in artificial sounds adds enough to make it worth it. Not to mention it's just kind of fucking weird. I think kind of creepy. I think baseball has the least to overcome with silence, without crowds, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's yes. not me saying that baseball crowds and broadcast noise are not important. They're simply just not as present because there's more downtime 
in baseball and the announcers already innately know how to fill dead air. You know, there's a reason why you and I complain more about baseball broadcasters leaving dead silence than I would about other sports casters leaving dead silence is because there's more to hear in other sports. Um, frankly, because if, if you're just, if you're watching a baseball broadcast and several pitches go by without the announcer saying anything, you're like, why is there dead silence on my broadcast? But if someone hits a big shot in basketball and they come down the other way and Mike Breen says bang, but then he lets 30 seconds of silence go by, you're like, wow, you know, Oracle is going crazy right now or whatever. But yeah, like, I don't want to hear Joe Buck calling a football game. Like it's a golf game, you know, like, and Brady falls back. And let's see. And he lets this one fly. And it is dropped. Are you watching the golf, I, the golf thing? What is it even called? I don't know. Oh, I forgot that that was, that that was actually even happening. That wasn't an inadvertent reference to like Tom Brady playing golf. But no, I'm not watching that. Good. Okay. Didn't want to have to wrap the podcast early. <laughs> so that's my first thought. Is that baseball has less to overcome than something like european soccer where they're chanting in the entire time in the background and i saw this this clip going around from darren Ravel. um <laughs> darren Ravel. i think it's the first time we've ever had to bring him up on this podcast but there's a clip oh, going God, around let's from, make it the last <laughs> from darren Ravel um of the german soccer league um with crowd noise piped in and honestly it sounded pretty natural you know and they were taking angles on the broadcast where it, it was hard to see the the fans anyway. You can't really see fans that well in a soccer match because the field is so big that they take such a high angle to see everyone that you don't really see the stands anyway. Whereas baseball, you can see behind the plate the whole time. You can see that there are no fans there. It's another conversation to see if they want to put fake fans behind home plate, which I think is also silly, but I don't know. Um, my second thought on this is that feels dangerous is that too strong of a word word it feels weird to set a precedent for live television to be altered in a way and i maybe i'm naive in thinking that it's not altered already by certain practices and behaviors but to present anything other than what's actually going on on the field and in the stadium it feels disingenuous to the point where like, I'm worried that they might just change the crowd noise in the future because they have the technology and the precedent. And I don't mean to be all like, let's, I don't mean to be all, let's be skeptical of power in all instances right now on the pod, but to introduce that, let's be spectacle of power (laughs) in all instances (laughs) to introduce that type of technology and then not think that it'll ever be used poorly or abused in the future, I think is just like foolish, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I guess the the counter argument to that is that we already know that what we're watching is like spectacle and entertainment and there is an element of performance to all of it already. Um like when I am when I'm playing MLB the show and there's crowd noise in the background, like it does kind of it does kind of feel real. And so it is something that I think they Let's could get do. Jacked up. <laughs> Can you become a Twitch streamer? I would watch you on Twitch. What, what do you want me to play? MLB The Show? Red Dead Redemption? Definitely not. I mean, actually, Red Dead Redemption is kind of fun to watch other people play. Yeah. It's like a it's Western. Kind of, yeah, yeah, exactly. You can just kind of like top. Uh, I don't know. This is a conversation for a whole other podcast. You already have the Blue Yeti mic. You know, that's like the Twitch streamer mic. That is the Twitch streamer mic. Yeah. I just got to get my my setup. And I, I don't like the whole like seeing the the person in the bottom corner because I look like shit when I'm playing video games most of the time. So I'd have to really up my setup there. Just like dropped a, like a bagel bite on your white t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then just like lift the shirt up and eat it straight off the shirt, you know, like a lot, a lot going on there. Um, well, split screen action with Bryce Harper on Twitch. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. Play a little starting nine in the background. Oh God! I'm sorry, Wait, we're, en- we're I ending this like way off track. <laughs> when you're playing MLB the show, you get excited well, about the broadcast. Well, yeah, I mean, and so like I, I do, I question like whether or not it would feel weird enough to like 
be like uncanny. You know, it's like the, that, that idea of the uncanny valley, right? When you are watching a movie that is animated or something like that. You know, like the Harrison Ford, what was it, Call of the Wild or something like that? Or yeah. Some, where they animated the dog and you couldn't even tell. I mean, well, you could tell that it was fake, but it was the kind of thing where it was, first of all, why didn't you use a real dog? And second of all, it's really weird to watch Harrison Ford running around with something that I know isn't real, but it's just close enough that it kind of tricks your mind at times. Yeah, And so I... I get that argument, um, but at the same time, I also wonder if that's something that like you just gradually grow to become used to. In part, just because like the audience is such a small part of the broadcast, anyway. I don't know. Sure, but I think giving networks the tool to do that might open up the ability for them to do that in the future to make it seem like the crowd is more into it or make it seem like every crowd is really loud in all of these big moments as a way to sort of drive interest in the broadcast and make viewers at home feel like what they're watching is this loud and boisterous event, even though that's not what baseball is supposed to be. The reason that it's so cool throughout all of these baseball history moments that the crowd erupts is because the crowd doesn't usually erupt. So if I'm watching game one fourteen. Phillies Marlins and Reese Hoskins hits a bomb to left center and the Philadelphia crowd suddenly starts in the network. The broadcast takes it too far because they're still working on it. And suddenly it sounds like they just won game seven of the world series. Well, I'm like, I don't trust anything in the future now. Like, no, the Philly crowd (laughs) is not going to react like that. They're down three and Reese Hoskins just hit a solo shot. The Philly crowd's going to be like, fuck you. You're still losing. Like, It just opens up the opportunity for the network to decide what they want the broadcast to sound like, as opposed to just capturing what the actual broadcast sounds like. And anytime you allow the network to decide what they want the broadcast to sound like, they're going to whiff. Because it's just like, maybe they might not. Maybe they might not. Let me add that caveat. Maybe maybe the people making these decisions know what they're doing. But... That's a that's a fun caveat to add on this podcast where we are incredibly distrustful. I also think it's hard though. Like it's hard to know what the viewer truly wants. There's a way that you could talk yourself into thinking it's a good idea to make the viewer at home more excited. But that's not what baseball is, man. Baseball is sitting down, getting into the rhythm of it, appreciating the slow burn of it all, and then as the game crescendos and gets louder and louder and louder and then more exciting towards the end of the game if you're lucky enough to be watching a great game, the crowd kind of follows along. But if like, if they just press a button that says crowd cheer one, every time someone hits a home run, it's just like, not my, it's not what I want from my baseball broadcast. I don't know that I trust the TV execs who chose to put John Smoltz in a broadcast booth to actually know what viewers want to hear. And like, what happens if John Smoltz just seizes control of the soundboard? And then when, you know, they take out the pitcher in the, in the fourth inning or whatever, he just like smashes the boo button and is like, yeah, the crowd, the crowd, the crowd clearly hates this and agrees with me, the smartest person in the stadium right now. Yeah. In, in short, TLDR, make the crowd work for it. That's my take. Yeah. And again, I I think it goes back to like the first thing we said, which is just like, it's, it feels very unnecessary for baseball. Like baseball kind of sounds fine with just the natural sounds of the stadium. Like you're, you're not losing as much as you would in other sports. And frankly, I think that they should (laughs) recognize that. Okay. Let's take a quick break, Alex. And when we come back, uh, we're going to run down a list of baseball's weirdest traditions, ones that we, now that we've had, maybe five or six months without baseball to, to think about this traditions that we look back on and we're like, why does baseball do that? Uh, that's right after this break. So as I was thinking about the, the impending return of the baseball season, because it it feels like we will likely get baseball in 2020, whether or not it's a it's a good idea, that feels like the, the future that we're hurtling towards. And 
I was thinking about the the things that we'll see on opening day, whether it's a it's a flyover of military planes that will waste tens of thousands of dollars, um, or the Just first to feel pitch safe. That, yeah, you know what makes yeah, me feel safe is seeing the army in action. <laughs> Um, or the, the ceremonial first pitch, which ironically is done for the fans, which there will be none of. So will there be ceremonial first pitches? Um, write us an email and let us know. Um, but I, I got to thinking about how baseball has all of these antiquated traditions that really make absolutely no sense. And, and if any other sport tried to do them, we would be like, what the fuck are you doing? Why did you bring out Kevin Hart to shoot a free throw to start out this basketball game? <laughs> it's really not even like shooting a free throw. It'd be more like him winning the tip and like dribbling it over half court. <laughs> the ceremonial or, or losing, first or losing, tip. losing the tip in the case of Kevin Hart. Yeah, the ceremonial first tip. It's like uh, Kevin Hart versus Dave Chappelle. Yeah, that would suck. That would that'd be really boring. Why would they do that? I would like it. Anyway, it, it, I got to thinking, and I, I just wanted to talk about some of these with you, Bobby, and we can talk about where where we think their origins come from, because baseball is an incredibly weird sport that is so stuck in its ways that some of these are things that started in you know the 1800s, in the early 1900s, and we just kind of do them because we don't know what else to do. Will you go down this rabbit hole with me? I am always willing to go down a rabbit hole of your creation. <laughs> this is like the substitution for Alex's Wikipedia deep dive, which we did for like three weeks and was great. And now we don't do anymore. Yeah. Well, we'll bring it back in the near future. Um, Remember when we were a podcast that went back and watched old baseball games and we just never <laughs> talked about that ending and now it just ended. <laughs> back no, to talk pull- about baseball. WBOK yeah. was not interested in the old baseball rewatches. Yeah, it was really, it was a lot of the listener con- calls that convinced us that um, no one liked it. <laughs> anyway, um, we can start out with the with the easy one. Today's Memorial Day. We're recording this on Monday, which is Memorial Day. And um, while every sport does the national anthem, baseball started it, you know it did, back in World War II. When we needed to bring that American patriotism to a sport that we watch, why? Uh, we just, you know, decided to sing our country's national song before every single game. I mean, we talk about other countries doing like insanely nationalist shit and being like, wow, that's pretty cultish. But let's talk about how before every sporting event, 40,000 people stand up and put their hands over their hearts and sing the same song with the flag waving. Oh my God. On the list of insanely nationalist shit that we do every day of our lives, this is not even first. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely the Pledge of Allegiance in schools. Definitely. Yes, that's a bizarre thing that thankfully is like slowly getting phased out. But, you know, people are people are still into that. Tired. School being canceled for a coronavirus pandemic is bad. Wired. School being canceled is good because kids aren't saying the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The the National Anthem. It's it's too much. It's too much. It doesn't relate (laughs) to what is happening for the three and a half, sometimes four and a half hours afterwards. It just has nothing to do with it. And I suppose you could make the argument that like baseball is our, our greatest national export, but um, it's not being played at the Olympics, guys. We know where it's being played. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, baseball has this weird obsession with like letting the fans sing songs, right? I mean, you can, I mean, we'll go straight into like, take me out to the ball game. Or if you're in New York, God bless America, which, all right. Sure, let's just, as if one song about our great nation wasn't enough, you know, but like, I, I'm i just so curious where these traditions came from, that it was just like, let's let everyone sing a song real quick in the middle of the game. Like, what would, like, what do you think? I, I think we actually we talked about this um, when we had on the, the guys from the horse podcast and, uh, and, and discussed what song would be played at a basketball game that people could sing along to, but like, why do we do this? Why do we do this, Bobby? Can you answer that for me? I don't know. I mean, crowd participation is important. Um, 
<laughs> I say, as we just did a 10-minute segment about how <laughs> crowds are not that necessary to baseball broadcasts. But no, I mean, crowd participation participation used to be something that teams valued they used to value the fan feeling like they were having an experience at the at the game and i think that that's where songs came from and uh i think that that's where like it is all part of this larger theatrical experience that baseball is it's not you're not just you're going there to be entertained in theory and that that idea of entertainment and what that means has sort of been has sort of developed in good and bad ways and i mean now entertainment is like someone sitting in a chevy camaro being driven out to center field during the seventh inning stretch and and doing a trivia quiz about mets history and if they win they win like six hundred dollars or something and the six hundred dollars came from the chevrolet corporation it's like (laughs) (laughs) it's sort of been like bastardized and sold around and whatever but um i think in the end it comes from the idea of wanting it to be a theatrical experience. It's it, you know, baseball started back when people used to go to like see plays and shit, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So it's just like, I don't know. Maybe baseball, the, the modern play Rob Manfred is our William Shakespeare. (laughs) God, Joey Votto is our William Shakespeare. Big facts. (laughs) (laughs) So, so what you're saying, okay. So, so you would give the, Take me out to the ball game and that level of uh, crowd participation. That's a, that's a thumbs up from you. Oh There's yeah, national, national anthem, big big thumbs down. You don't put your arm around your friends and sway back and forth when uh, someone takes an eight pitch walk. You put your uh, arm. Maybe maybe you don't. <laughs> I've been to like fifty <laughs> baseball games with you. I know that you don't either. <laughs> you're doing. You're more of a softball chant type of guy. G double O D E Y E good eye, good eye. That's you. I know we, you. We we must bring those to professional baseball games. I it's our duty as fans. I think take me out to the ball game as a as a home run thumbs up. Do you not? Uh, no, I I absolutely do. I just kind of want to I want to make very clear where we where we stand on these traditions. Um, take me out to the ball game singing definite thumbs up. Uh, have we mentioned any other ones yet? National anthem was the other one. National anthem thumbs down. <laughs> um, all right, here's one that actually really kind of doesn't make sense to me why this ever happened with baseball. And I'm, if you know the answer to this, please tell me. Uh, fans keeping score. Fans literally keeping a tabulation of everything that happens in a baseball game. No, I I don't know how that one started, but let me spitball for a sec here. As you as you look it up over there, I can see your your googling faces on. My take is that clubs asked fans to keep score so that other clubs didn't try to pull some bullshit on them. And then it just became a thing where like in order to stay engaged with the game and also the added benefit was that they didn't have scoreboards. So it literally to know the score, you had to keep track of yourself. That's my working theory. Again, this feels like one of those things where it was just kind of carried over from the past. Yeah. Like we didn't really need to do it anymore. Um, Super don't need fans, to do it now. Fans were just like, why not? And an, and, it, and another thing is like, it is a way to keep the fans engaged. I, what I am realizing as we, as we go down this list and as I kind of started putting this list together, I was like a large majority of baseball traditions were born because either fans or players were really bored and they just kind of wanted something to do like with their hands. And frankly, I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is a cool opportunity to talk about keeping score in 2020, like manually. Um, Because I think that, I think it's actually come all the way around and keeping score manually is cool again. Whereas like if you went back 25 or 30 years, the person that kept score might kind of be like a little bit dickish, a little bit dismissive and say, I'm the real baseball fan. And if you don't keep score, what kind of baseball fan are you? But now it's, now it's closer to, I keep score because like you're saying, it is a way to keep engaged. It's a way to make sure I know everything that's going on. And I catch these little intricacies that baseball is so full of and so rich with. And um, if you go to a game with someone and they pull out a scorebook, it says something about that person. It says that that person is 
a a hardcore fan. No bullshit around here. I'm here to keep score. I know what I know what an E4 looks like. I know what an F9 looks like. You know, like these are these are people who have committed committed to the bit. The bit being still liking baseball in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right on that. It's its own language, really. It is a it's an art form. Um and a a quick bit of googling and if there's a more informed listener out there please let us know but i th- it i think that <laughs> but it seems like you are correct in that way back in the old days of baseball in the mid 1800s you know and it was just a a man and a stick and a ball scorekeepers it hasn't changed you know <laughs> <laughs> scorekeepers were typically employed by the home team and yeah. so there was a there was a level of kind of um there was a lack of impartial scorekeeping and certain scores might be suspect which is in part why when you go back and look through history there might be discrepancies in box scores you know various newspapers might give varying accounts and so it was a level i think to um not only engage the fan in the game but also almost just like is is baseball scored keeping the original crowdsourcing, you know? And then everyone just kind of gets together. <laughs> it, re- it really was. Um, I mean, you kind of stumbled into the perfect phrase by saying it's an art form. It's, it's super not a science. Yeah. You, there are countless times in baseball history, and the first one that comes to mind in the last decade or so is CC Sabathia lost a no-hitter off something that the official scorekeeper said was was a hit and not an error where they laid down a bunt down the third baseline and CC charged it. He picked it up. He bobbled it in his throwing hand and he went to go throw it to first and the runner beat it out because of the bobble. Is that an error? Or is it not? It's not science. Every scorekeeper decides. And you know, we could probably do a whole episode on the, all of the biggest what ifs in baseball scorekeeping history. They are, they are plenty. Yeah. So, uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up for scorekeeping? Thumbs, thumbs up for scorekeeping. We, I think we're, it's cool. We're, we're, keep, we're keeping scorekeeping. Scorekeeping is cool. Okay. Scorekeeping is um, cool. <laughs> I like how like we're like the czar. We're right. the czar of baseball fandom. And we're if deciding. we say that we say that it's thumbs down, nobody's allowed to do it ever again. You stay, you <laughs> national anthem. Be gone. <laughs> um, all right, next one. Throw in the ball around the horn. After a strikeout. Hard thumbs up. Just, I'm just going to tip my pitches right here. Hard <laughs> thumbs up, dude. Throwing a ball around the horn is sick. Anyway, keep going. I I mean, that's it. After strikeouts, the infielders just kind of want to play a little play a little game of catch real quick. Do you before have the history for this? To- I'm curious if there is a documented history for this. Because it's one of those things where someone probably just did it one time. And everyone was like, that was fun. Let's do that thing again. It it appears that throwing the ball around the horn um, was another thing that originated in like the the late eighteen hundreds as as just a bit of showmanship, as just a bit of something fun to do to do for the fans. It actually um, so there were players who would do this prior to the game and just kind of would like throw the ball around and have fun with it and show off for the fans a little bit. And it slowly kind of evolved into, into something that you just did after a particularly good play. You know, you're just like showing off the fans a little bit. You're like, yeah, I fucking turn that double play. Now watch me throw it over to second base again. again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You like that one? <laughs> Wait till you see this one. <laughs> yeah. And doing it for the fans is cool. I mean, I don't think fans think it's, particularly impressive anymore with how far baseball has come it might have been impressive in the 1850s when no one had a glove it was like oh you can complete a throw and catch um now it's kind of evolved to the point where it's it's exciting for the pitcher you know if you get a strikeout and the catcher guns it down to third base and they get it around and that's pretty cool that's a that's an exhilarating feeling as as speaking as a former pitcher myself alex (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing, got professional experience there's nothing more here. exciting than your high school teammates 
you get a strikeout and your high school teammates yell, get it around, and then they throw it around. That's that's, that's Yeah, exactly. And you can just kind of stalk around the mound for a little bit, right? Gives you gives you a bit of breather. And I think that like again, it's baseball players just kind of are a little antsy and they wanted to like get a little more involved. And so they're just like, hey, throw it to me. I haven't gotten the ball in three innings. Maybe just like I want to remember what it feels like. Last last thing I'll say on around the horn, though it is definitively a thumbs up. It's not fully up. It's three quarters up because oh wow! Because when I said it, it was a hard thumbs up. So it's a hard that you're uh, walking that back. It's a hard thumbs up. The idea of it, but I want it to be executed better. <laughs> I want more okay. variations on get it around. Like I want the catcher to throw it to the left fielder. Let's get crazy with it. Each yeah. team has their own permutation of get it around <laughs> that I, I like that i like that we throw it to the bat boy in left field the bat boy tosses it up hits a soft toss to the right fielder i don't know get crazy yeah. with it harlem globetrotters <laughs> this shit yeah like p- play a little game of pepper in between strikeouts pepper oh hell yeah i hate pepper <laughs> so yeah, bad dumb. <laughs> um before we move on from this this is just a tidbit that i wanted to bring up about the name around the horn um, because I mean, when you think about it, it, it doesn't make sense. What does that mean? It has nothing to do with throwing the ball around a baseball diamond. But according to MLB uh, official historian John Thorne, this is from an article in the Washington Times a few years back. Um, the term itself actually is historically significant as well. Um, when baseball was becoming popular um, shortly after the California Gold Rush in the you know mid 1800s um players would and their family members would head west right they were heading west to um play baseball out there but to manifest destiny on the pod today oh hell yeah hell yeah um but apparently the return trip was very treacherous uh, at the time the return trip back across the country so they would instead leave san francisco and sail around cape horn at the southernmost tip of south america to either New York or Boston. So that they were was going, safer? They were going physically around the horn. Yeah, does not seem safer at all. Jesus, let's make the trip four times longer and it's on water. Personally, I'm out on all sea travel. That's just yeah. a me thing. Absolutely. Shout out to the 49ers, but <laughs> coming all the way back <laughs> around the horn, but personally not for me, dog. Um, Around the horn, by the way, before we move on, around the horn. Really sad that that ESPN TV show took that name. Would have been a great name for a podcast. Uh, yes, absolutely. Everything it is, good it's an has objectively been done before. Good name. Yes. <laughs> Except tipping pitches. Very original, very iconic, very important, very large, very successful podcast. Um, next on my list is, uh, is throwing the opponent's home run ball. <laughs> this is uh this is somewhat controversial. Wow. Also has historical roots, and not every uh, not every fan base does that. Um, but in certain stadiums, there's quite a lot of pressure for you to throw that ball back on the field. What do we? How do we feel about this? What's our take? Mm, you gave me a political one. Yeah, yeah. You gotta. This, this is, is like a where statement. you gotta draw your line in the sand. <laughs> Give me a second here. I'm really reaching into my the deep realms of my personality. Uh, I think thumbs down. I think I'm anti that. Yeah. Because, not because I think it's dangerous. You know, I'm not the PA announcer coming over the loudspeaker and saying, objects thrown onto the field are dangerous to the players. Blah, blah, blah. I'm not that. <laughs> no. These are professional baseball players. They can catch your little soft toss. I'm anti that because. Everywhere you look around a baseball stadium, there are fans of each team. And you could just go give it to a kid. Just go give the home run ball to a kid. Don't throw it back. That is always the right move. I know that's a pandery answer, but giving the home run ball to a kid is 100% of the time the right move. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I agree. It's also like, as opposed to being like a communal act where everyone participates in this thing, it makes the baseball game like about you for just a split second you need to feel like you are the most important person and so you you throw the ball back on the field and then you look around with a very self-satisfied smile and then the cops arrest you 
Uh, yeah, and you <laughs> high five your buddies, and then the usher comes down as and then is, is like, "All right, buddy, that's your last beer. Wrap it up here." You know, like it's very. It feels like a very smug kind of action. Oh, um, you can throw the ball back on the field. Cool. Yeah. Oh, oh this guy man. played baseball in Throws the ball back onto the field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's especially bad when like people encourage the kid to throw the ball back. You know, this like in theory, very special moment where you just yeah, have a right? ball and then everyone's like, throw it back. Too much like, peer pressure. Why? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Tipping pitches is anti-peer pressure. I mean, the last thing on that is the other, the final reason that it's thumbs down is because who, who are you proving what to? <laughs> is it, yes, is it supposed to discourage the other team from hitting home runs? Yeah. Yeah. It's like <laughs> they might throw it back at me. I won't hit the ball out again. No. Stop. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Do you think that this is an anti throwing the ball back podcast? I didn't know where I was going to land, but now I'm very staunchly. I feel that way. Early on, once again, in the uh, in the history of the game, it was actually very commonplace to throw the ball back, um, not because you were sticking it to the other team, but just because... They needed more balls. They needed to reuse the balls. <laughs> Especially during World War II, apparently. Um, in part just Everything because you, just know, you had a, back to a lot. Fucking World War it II. all comes back to World War II. Okay, World War II gave us it. some of the worst traditions. <laughs> Make another movie about it. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Wow. People are, people are tuning out as we speak. Is that all? Is that uh, all? Do you have any more on your list? Let's do one more. I'm having fun. And this podcast is not about the listener. It's about me having fun. <laughs> All right, last one on my list, Bobby. And this one, another one that might be divisive, but um, but there's also some means testing that goes on here on whether or not this is okay for you to do. Bringing your glove to the ballpark with you. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so my knee-jerk reaction on this one is thumbs down. Right. Because what? Are you going to get a chance to play? What is the thinking there? Hey, Jimmy, four rows up. We need you. Come down. With the Mizuno glove. The Mizuno glove. No, 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 no. Not the Rawlings one. The Mizuno glove. Yes, Jimmy. Yes, you. So my initial reaction is thumbs down. Boom. No. Right. But on further thought, I also wear other parts of the uniform to the game. (laughs) (laughs) And I am I incriminating myself for wearing almost the full getup of Mike Piazza to a Mets game, but not the mitt. I'm right. wearing the hat. I'm wearing the jersey. When I was a kid, I'm, wearing the pants. I might have been wearing the pants when I was a kid. <laughs> so the only part that I'm missing is the glove. Yeah. I mean, I think that like it if is a very... pro glove, you have to be pro dude who wears basketball shorts to basketball games. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's just, I hate to do it to you, but that's the facts. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, you're you're very right. Like, dudes look dorky, like walking into a basketball game, like wearing the sweatband on their head. But you know, or like Jordans. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm like, okay, dang, bro, bro you wearing those Hyperdunk 2011s, trying to get some burn. <laughs> I think that like it's extremely cool and wholesome for like a little kid to wear the baseball club because, again, it it does harken back to that crowd participation, and it's like. I could catch a home run. A player might throw me a ball. And it does kind of break that fourth wall yeah. a little bit. Mm-hmm. You have the videos of um, players before the game like who might play a quick game of catch with uh, with a kid in the stands. And that's like, you know, that's every kid's dream is like Mike Trout turns around and is like, yo, kid, with the glove, here. And that's amazing. Or you go out and watch batting practice. There are so many inter- interesting parts of the game where you just almost have unfettered access to the athletes, mm-hmm. especially in baseball. Um, so, like, here if comes kid, your rant about the the safety nets, huh? Is that where you're going with this? <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> if you're a kid, I think it's good. If you're a uh, if you're a, a mom or dad, I, I'm less of a thumbs up on that one. Although I get your point that it's like, you might as well commit to the bit. It just right? seems impractical if you're a mom or dad though. Cause you got a lot of other yeah. shit to carry. 
Yeah. What are you going to put like your hot dog in the glove where you carry it back to your seat? You know, leave the yeah. glove at the seat, worry about someone yeah. stealing the glove. Right. Well, and the thing is, I'm actually personally scarred because there was a glove that I loved as a kid. And then, of course, you get home from the game and you're like, shit. You forgot it's your under glove under my seat. Yes. Alex. Yeah. yeah, I know. I was like nine. You're I don't supposed know what you to expect sleep from with me. that thing, man. You can't leave that thing around. <laughs> I know. It was it was a tough moment for me and I had to adapt and grow. Is so I'm I'm thumbs up then, because we have to allow kids to have the glove. You know what I've always wondered about the outfielders who have catches with the kids in the outfield? Like, what if you just throw one wide? You're not 100%. You don't know for sure that you're going to hit that kid in the glove every time. Yeah. That video of Aaron Judge having catch with the kid in the outfield, he's throwing it from 80 feet. (laughs) Yeah. You're putting a lot of trust in a kid who doesn't do this professionally. (laughs) You're putting a lot of trust in yourself, even though you do do it professionally. Like, I could pull up countless number of videos where you're throwing home and you don't hit the mark. Yeah. If you nail the mom who's standing next to that kid, Jesus, that's a PR nightmare. <laughs> I was going to say lawsuit, but <laughs> maybe everyone both. should have a glove then for safety reasons. Yeah, there you go. The the, ans- the answer to putting nets up is just hand everyone a baseball glove as they enter the ballpark. That seems expensive. I, I baseball do baseball teams do things that are way more expensive, like d- putting out a Chevron car in the middle of the seventh inning and just having a Mets fan. <laughs> the gas company. <laughs> okay, this is a good place to end. I lit up from Reno. I was trailed by twenty hounds. Didn't get to sleep that night till the morning came around. Sit okay, Alex, thank you for bringing us. Those relics of baseball tradition. That was a lot of fun. We should do. We should just make that a segment. Bobby does thumbs up or thumbs down. <laughs> Bobby rates baseball tradition and roasts seventy percent of the fan base. Listen, man, I was pro. I don't think seventy percent of fan bases throw the ball back. That's the only one I roasted. The baseball glove, I was pro. Thumbs up. That's true. We did. We did come around on that one. Just don't Cubs bring fans are really mad at you about the throwing the ball back, though. Whatever. Cubs fans can stop taking themselves so seriously. You got your World Series, okay? We don't need to talk about <laughs> you every day anymore. Cool. Yeah, you're just as shitty as the rest of us now. I haven't been alive for a Mets World Series anyways. Just because I'm not 85 doesn't mean that <laughs> I haven't suffered. You're not cool, 87-year-old Doris. You got your World Series ring. Get over yourself. <laughs> Thank you for listening. As always, we appreciate it. Um, we're probably going to have some some messy, chaotic news to talk about next time we record it, Alex. But until then, uh, we appreciate you listening, and we'll talk to you next week. WBOK is a radio radio station broadcasting a variety of formats, including gospel and various local talk programs brokered by their hosts. Their branding is real talk for real times. I think that applies to us. (laughs) I don't think they're looking for our type of real talk.